Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! You mentioned the Biden administration trying to prevent um, white nationalists from being in the military. Do you believe they should allow white nationalists in the military? Well, they call them that. I call them Americans. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville is under fire for supporting white nationalists in the U.S. military. We'll speak to former Alabama Senator Doug Jones, who once prosecuted Ku Klux Klan members for blowing up the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham in 1963, killing four young girls. We'll look at extremism in the military and in the offices of Congress. Then we get an update from human rights advocates just back from the U.S.-Mexico border as the Trump-era Title 42 policy ends. We are seeing thousands of people coming to the border with the hope of crossing. Confusing information and the announcement of an even stricter prohibition on asylum has increased fears and anxieties, causing people to lose hope of a life without violence and reuniting with their family on the other side. We'll speak to Amnesty International, the Haitian Bridge Alliance, and Al Otro Lado, all that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Sudan, military forces unleashed airstrikes near a hospital in the capital, Khartoum, on Monday, targeting paramilitary rivals as fighting between the warring parties enters a second month. Airstrikes and shelling were reported in other cities in recent days, including intense battles in the western region of Darfur and in the cities of Bahri and Abdurman. The U.N. estimates some 200,000 people have fled Sudan to neighboring countries since the war erupted in April, the vast majority of those displaced being women, children, many of whom are malnourished. Hundreds of people who've escaped the violence in the capital to relatively safe cities like Port Sudan now face shortages of food, water and shelter as extreme heat hits the region. People, they don't like us to be here. And now the way we are here with the children and the mothers, some of them are sick and some of them, there's no food people they can eat. So we are suffering. Over 600 people have reportedly died since the beginning of the conflict, though the death toll is expected to be much higher. The prominent Sudanese singer, Shaden Gardoud, was killed in crossfire between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces in Abdurman City Friday, despite an agreement between the two sides to protect civilians. Meanwhile, there's been multiple reports of women and girls being sexually assaulted by armed groups. 
In Somalia, the United Nations says some 450,000 people in the central Hiran region have been displaced by flash flooding caused by torrential rains. At least 22 people have died. This comes after a record drought in Somalia left millions of Somalis on the brink of famine. China's government has issued heat advisories in the capital, Beijing, and other major cities as temperatures reach record highs for the date. In North America, an early season heat wave has smashed high temperature records along the west coast of Canada and the United States, with Seattle and Portland reporting record highs for several days in a row. On Monday, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau visited Alberta province, where an intense early start to the wildfire season has forced tens of thousands of people to evacuate and slashed oil production in Canada's tar sands region. In the United States, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned Monday the U.S. remains on track to default on its debts as soon as June 1st unless congressional leaders agree to a deal raising the limit on the national debt. Her warning came as House Republican leaders rejected White House proposals to close tax loopholes as part of any deal to raise the debt ceiling. The proposal sought to collect more tax revenue from cryptocurrency transactions and from large real estate investors. President Biden said Sunday's optimistic lawmakers will reach a deal by June 1st, an idea shot down Monday by Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So, no, I don't think we're in a good place. I know we're not. This ignoring the problem, thinking it's going to go away, he could bumble his way just into a default like he did on the on the on the border. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case that could see South Carolina reinstate a congressional redistricting plan that was struck down by a lower court as an attempt at racist gerrymandering. In January, a three-judge panel of the federal district court in Columbia, South Carolina, ruled unanimously state Republicans unfairly drew maps that split black neighborhoods in Charleston, leading to the exile of more than 30,000 African-American citizens from their previous districts. In Washington, D.C., special counsel John Durham has completed his investigation into the FBI's probe of Russian interference in the 2016 Trump campaign. Durham's 300-plus page report concluded the FBI should never have launched its investigation, which Durham said was based largely on leads provided by political opponents of Donald Trump and relied heavily on, quote, raw, unanalyzed and uncorroborated intelligence, unquote. The report does not recommend any major changes to FBI and Justice Department policies, Durham was appointed special counsel in 2019 by then-Attorney General Bill Barr after Barr referred to the FBI's court-authorized activities as spying. In New York, a $10 million lawsuit filed Monday against former New York City mayor and Donald Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani alleges Giuliani raped and harassed a former associate over the span of two years. The suit was filed by Noel Dunphy, who says Giuliani hired her in 2019, promising an annual salary of $1 million, but instead repeatedly sexually assaulted her. She also accuses Giuliani of being constantly drunk making racist and sexist remarks and anti-Semitic comments, many of which were recorded. Giuliani also allegedly plotted to sell pardons for $2 million, the lawsuit alleges, to be split between him and former President Donald Trump, who was giving the pardons, and asked Dunphy to refer anyone who needed one. 
In New Mexico, three people were killed and six others injured in the community of Farmington Monday morning when an 18-year-old armed with an AR-15-style assault rifle and two other guns went on a rampage, firing randomly as he walked through a neighborhood before he was shot dead by police. Investigators say they're still searching for a motive and haven't released the names of the dead and wounded. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham said in a statement, quote, This serves as yet another reminder of how gun violence destroys lives in our state and our country every single day, she said. According to the Gun Violence Archive, it was the 225th mass shooting in the United States so far this year. Vice Media has filed for bankruptcy less than a month after laying off over 100 workers across its global newsroom. A group of company lenders, including Soros Fund Management, has submitted a bid of $225 million to purchase Vice's assets, while remaining operations are expected to keep running. The media company was once considered to be worth $5.7 billion. In April, Vice canceled its award-winning weekly show, Vice News Tonight, and shut down its international news unit, Vice World News. And a warning to our audience, our last headline contains graphic footage of violence. San Francisco's district attorney said Monday she will not bring charges against a security guard who shot and killed 24-year-old black trans activist Banco Brown last month after he allegedly tried to steal snacks from a Walgreens pharmacy. The announcement came as the DA's office released surveillance video of the killing. It shows the guard repeatedly punching Brown, slamming him to the floor and lying on top of him. After Brown flees the store, the guard pulls out a handgun and fires a single fatal shot directly into Brown's chest. District Attorney Brooke Jenkins on Monday called the killing reasonable. What he said was, I saw a movement that led me to believe something dangerous was about to happen to me. Could have been a knife could have been whatever it was, I believed that I was in imminent danger. And the law doesn't require that you wait and see, is it a gun, is it a knife, is it scissors? The law allows you to have a perception and a belief so long as it's reasonable. Brooke Jenkins was appointed San Francisco's interim district attorney last July by Mayor London Breed, replacing former progressive D.A. Chesa Boudin, who was ousted by voters in a multimillion-dollar-funded special recall election led by the real estate industry. Jenkins received over $100,000 as a consultant for a nonprofit that led efforts to recall Boudin. Banco Brown's killing has ignited protests across the San Francisco Bay Area, where nearly half of all residents live in families listed as low income or very low income. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville is coming under fire after expressing support for white nationalists in the U.S. military. Tuberville made the comments last week while talking to WBHM, an NPR affiliate in Alabama. We are losing in the military so fast our readiness in terms of recruitment. And why? I can tell you why. Because the Democrats are attacking our military, saying we need to get out the white extremists, the white nationalists, people that don't don't believe in, in our agenda as, as uh, Joe Biden's agenda. Uh, they're destroying it. You mentioned the Biden administration trying to prevent um, white nationalists from being in the military. Do you believe they should allow white nationalists in the military? Well, they call them that. I call them Americans. 
I call them Americans. In an attempt to walk back his comments, Senator Tuberville told a reporter at NBC, quote, I look at a white nationalist as a Trump Republican. Listen carefully. I look at a white nationalist as a, as a, a Trump Republican. That's what we're called all the time. A mega person. That's what Do I'm you just, agree that, that, with that well, assumption? I agree that we should not be characterizing Trump supporters as white nationalists. Senator Chuck Schumer blasted Tuberville's remarks, describing them as utterly revolting. The controversy comes as President Biden told graduates at Howard University Saturday white supremacy is a poison and the, quote, most dangerous terrorist threat in the country. Meanwhile, on Sunday, members of the white supremacist group Patriot Front marched along the National Mall in Washington, D.C., carrying shields and battle drums. Senator Tommy Tuberville was already facing criticism for blocking nearly 200 military promotions to protest a Pentagon policy, which covers paid leave for workers who have to travel out of state to get an abortion. Tuberville remains a major backer of Donald Trump. Last week, he decried the New York jury that unanimously found Trump had sexually assaulted and defamed E. Jean Carroll. Tuberville said the jury's decision, quote, makes me want to vote for him twice. We're joined now by former Alabama Senator Doug Jones, a Democrat who served in the Senate from 2018 to 2021. He lost to Tuberville in the 2020 election. Jones is also a former U.S. attorney who successfully prosecuted two Ku Klux Klan members involved in the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four girls between the ages of 11 and 14. Senator Doug Jones, welcome to Democracy Now!, uh, if you could first respond to your former opponent, um, Tuberville beat you for the Senate seat that you held, um, talking about responding to the issue of the, the Pentagon secretary, Lloyd Austin, uh, trying to rout out white supremacists in the military. Well, I think it's absolutely outrageous what he's saying. Uh, it, it's it, it, deplorable. Uh, you know, he talks about the fact that uh, Democrats are attacking the military. No, he's, uh, Democrats are not attacking the military. We're actually supporting the military. It is uh, Senator Tuberville who is attacking the military and all of their policies, whether it is holding up uh, nominations for promotions, which affects readiness and morale, or uh, attacking the policies um, that the administration is trying to do to kind of weed out these white nationalists, these white supremacists. You know, you only have to look at what happened in Boston recently, where a young National Guardsman uh, leaked classified information, and now we're learning he's the very kind of person that the administration uh, is trying to weed out of there. Uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, what Senator Tuberville says, and is purely a political ploy uh, attacking the administration at every turn. When asked about white nationalists, he said he calls them Americans. Um, you have a long, illustrious civil rights history. You put two members of the Ku Klux Klan behind bars for the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in uh, two, 1963. The bombing happened. Can you talk about what white nationalism means and what he's saying? Sure. You know, look, they may be American citizens, but they're dang sure not patriots. 
Uh, these are not people that support the government of the United States. They support themselves. They support only the white nationalists that uh, they are. They don't support a diverse society. They don't diver- uh, support a diverse America. And uh, if you look at what's happening, just look at the, the Patriot Front uh, guys who marched around the Capitol just recently. They are hell-bent on trying to make this a purely white country. Um, and totally not recognizing what's going on in this country and how supportive this country is of the diversity that we see. And that's the real problem. They will resort to violence. They will uh, resort to subversion of the United States, if possible, in order to get the kind of country they, in their mind, think is appropriate. And that is a real problem in the United States military. It's a problem in law enforcement across this country. And we have to make sure that we do everything necessarily to get those people out of the chain of command, out of the military, so that we can protect all Americans and protect our national security. During a March 28th hearing with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Senator Tuberville was quoted saying, quote, war is hell. You know that better than anybody Every recruit should know that. But in the last few years, we've put them through a different kind of hell. Uh, In one of your first acts, Mr. Secretary, you put our military, every single member, active duty and reserve, through a mandatory training to root out extremists. Um, Tuberville was clearly disparaging this. Your response, Senator Jones? It's just hard to respond to just stupid statements like that. I mean, that's the only way that you can uh, describe that kind of reaction to the United States military, to think that we should not be rooting out extremism on either side, by the way. It doesn't matter that whether if it's if it's extremism on the right or extremism on the left, that is dangerous to the United States military, to morale, to the chain of command, to our national security. And yes, war is hell. Everything is is difficult when the military, that is exactly why you have to have a disciplined military, not people that are going to go off like this guy did uh, and, and provide classified information to his buddies online. You've got to have that discipline and you cannot have that discipline if you have extremes on either side. You know, this is not uh, an old John Wayne movie. Uh, where you've got uh, that kind of war as hell. This is a very diverse military. It has people of all races, all religions. It has a, you know, I think roughly 20, 25 percent are now women. And the military brass, the leaders of our military, have to protect all of our uh, servicemen and women. And they have to do it in a way that recognizes the differences we have, but, but at the same time being able to watch the chain of command and keep that in, uh, in line. That is what is most important. And the extremism that Senator Tuberville is, is uh, complaining that there's being rooted out needs to be rooted out. I want to continue on this issue of white supremacists. In addition to Senator Jones, we're joined by Michael Edison Hayden, senior investigative reporter with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is based in Alabama, where he focuses on far-right extremism. He's joining us from New York City. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us again. A report you helped author last year said, quote, roughly one in five applicants to the white supremacist group Patriot Front claim to hold current or former military status, according to documents reviewed by Hate Watch. Explain and also put this in the context of Senator Tuberville's comments. 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Senator Tuberville is correct in saying that these folks are Americans, um, you know, and America has a very serious problem uh, with radical right extremism, um, as evidenced by all the violence that we've seen uh, in recent years, all all the different times I've come on uh, your show to talk about it. Uh, So, I mean, people with military backgrounds are heavily sought after by extremist groups, like Patriot Front, um, partly because they have a knowledge of, you know, how to operate in 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 these kind of urgent situations. Think about January 6th, although Patriot Front was not involved there, um, and and the degree to which military training could be a, a advantageous to folks in the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers. Right. So there's like a technical understanding of things that they understand. Then there's also the, the fact that we don't treat our veterans particularly well. Uh, in this country, which, um, you know, allows extremist groups to feed off of um, potential resentment or, or feelings of frustration and, and makes those folks uh, good uh, recruits. Um, I wanted to go back to Doug Jones and talk about Tuberville's role right now um, in uh, saying that over 200 Department of uh, Defense promotions are being blocked. Um, it's They're being blocked by one senator, by Senator Tuberville, who's demanding the Pentagon change its abortion policy for service members and dependents, which the Biden administration has supported since last October. Explain how it's possible that one senator, Senator Tuberville, can block the actions of the entire Senate. What's the procedure used? And talk about what he's doing it for. Well, first of all, I think he's doing it for uh, uh, because he's fighting culture wars. Uh, he, he accuses Democrats and others of politicizing the military, but yet he is the one politicizing the military. He is the one that is blocking um, promotions of uh, military across the services um, because of the culture war issue over the abortion policy that the Department of Defense has to protect women uh, in the military. So, what he's doing is that he cannot completely block a nomination. And a lot of people don't realize that military promotions at, at certain ranks have to be confirmed by the United States Senate. And what he's doing is pre, he's preventing those from being considered in, on, uh, in blocks, literally, you know, maybe 100 or 200 at a time where promotions can be moved through the Senate very quickly and very efficiently. That is always a nonpartisan issue. That is something that is done routinely to give deference to the military, to give deference to the administration. He has decided not to do that and to require the Senate to take up every nomination, every promotion, one at a time, which requires the Senate rules have a number of hours. It will delay work in the Senate. It will delay the military. And it has a ripple effect through the chain of command because these um, servicemen and women that are in line for the promotions, their entire careers are on hold. And those behind them that are set to fill the positions that they're being left vacant are also in hold. This is real, really devastating to morale. Uh, again, to the chain of command and ultimately national security and our readiness. And it shows a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of the military, the nature of service uh, to this country and what people are looking for when they decide to go into the military as a career. It is really outrageous what he's doing uh, in the Senate. 
At the same time, Michael Edison Hayden, um, we have the massacre in Allen, Texas, where ma the gunman who killed eight people and injured 10 was influenced by neo-Nazi and white supremacist ideology. You have the march by the Patriot Front on the National Mall this weekend. And you have jury selection uh, in the trial of Robert Bowers, the 50-year-old man who killed 11 worshippers at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Can you put this all together at this point? And then I have a final question for the senator. Sure. Um, you know, the Senator Tuberville's comments uh, speak to the deep, deep denial in this country of what is happening as far as radical right extremism is concerned. Uh, you know, I mean, what, like we have um, you know, people being murdered on a regular on a semi regular basis now. If you go back to the Tree of Life terror attack in October of 2018, then you have like El Paso, for example, in the summer of uh, in the summer of 2019. Uh, you have the attack in Colorado Springs, focused on the LGBTQ community, um, and then you have, of course, what happened in Allen, Texas, and there's some in between. This type of thing keeps happening, uh, just as we have this problem with, uh, you know, we have this problem with radicalization in the military, which we've been warning about going back to the mid 80s uh, without enough of a response. Uh, we had, for example, in the 90s, we had Timothy McVeigh. Uh, these things keep being brought up, these, these issues of violence and racism. These are core problems, uh, you know, in American life that go to the real uh, struggles uh, to be American and to, to keep people safe. Now, think about the fact that we have 700, uh, over 700 Confederate, uh, Confederate uh, symbols on military bases, and we have black people serving throughout the military. So these are, these are core problems, and, and the denial in this country is really deep, and it has to change. And you have Fort Benning just changing its name to Fort Moore. Um, yeah. But I want to end with Doug Jones um, on a note of history. Um, you have repeatedly said that perhaps the most important thing you've ever done as U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama was to prosecute the Klansmen who killed the four little girls in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, when they blew up the church. Uh, we're approaching the 60th anniversary of that tragedy uh, in September. Talk about the case and fighting white supremacist violence then, your role in convicting Thomas Blanton and Bobby Frank Cherry, and where you think we stand today, 60 years later. Well, I appreciate you asking that uh, question, because it is something that uh, has been very important uh, to me. Uh, to Alabama, to this country, uh, that we recognize that one of the most horrific uh, civil rights crimes in the history of this country, a civil rights crime that really, I do believe, changed the course of civil rights history. It, it, and, and we use the term woke these days. But in fact, that bombing really awakened America to the tragedies of, and, and the horrifics of Jim Crow. Uh, and the fact that you had so much racial violence in the 50s and 60s. And what concerns me now is that we are, are forgetting that. We're, we haven't looked back and learned the lessons of history and the tragedies of history that I think we should have. And in fact, the similarities that I see today is the rhetoric of politicians. In those days, it was Bull Connor, the racist police commissioner. It was governors like George Wallace and Ross Barnett who stoked 
uh, anger and stoked hatred and stoked violence uh, with their dog whistle type politics. And I think what we're seeing now is something very, very similar. Uh, you see that across the board, where it's particularly uh, kind of this, the MAGA-right uh, Republicans that seem to want to instill violence and hatred, support for people who violate the law uh, and attack others. That's a real danger, and it, it goes beyond just black and white now. It gets into religion. It goes to the Hispanic community. It goes to the Muslim community. Um, we are a much more diverse society than we were in the 1960s, 1963, when this bomb exploded, killing those four young girls. And I think we have to celebrate this diversity. But instead, what we're seeing is the hate and the violence spreading its wings to all uh, races, all ethnic groups, all uh, religions. Uh, and that is that white nationalist uh, philosophy that Tuberville thinks apparently is OK in the military, OK in our uh, law enforcement and apparently OK in this country. Well, it's not. It's not, and we have to work very, very hard, remember the lessons of the past, and work very hard to root that out. Doug Jones, I want to thank you very much for being with us, former Democratic senator for Alabama, speaking to us from Washington, D.C., and Michael Edison Hayden, senior investigative reporter with the Alabama-based Southern Poverty Law Center. Next up, we turn from extremism in the military and in the Senate to a neo-Nazi in the offices of Congress? Stay with us. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Just don't move me the way that it should. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. There ain't no book you can read. Maybe I'm Doing It Wrong by Randy Newman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we look now at the newly confirmed direct connection between a white supremacist leader and the digital director for one of Trump's staunchest supporters in Congress, we're joined in New York by Hunter Walker, an investigative reporter at Talking Points Memo, where his exclusive news story is headlined, Capitol Hill staffer is a prominent follower follower of neo-Nazi Nick Fuentes. Fuentes is a far-right leader who rose under Trump. The staffer, who is revealed in the piece, works for far-right uh, Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar, who's linked to organizers of the deadly January 6th insurrection and was censured for posting an animated video on social media where he murders Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacks President Biden. That's the Congressman Gosar. Gosar also spoke at the openly racist America First conference organized by Nick Fuentes to compete with the conservative political action conference known as CPAC. This news story reveals 
Gosar's ties to the white supremacist movement go even deeper. Hunter Walker, if you can lay out what you found about his digital director. Well, Amy, great to see you, first off. And as you pointed out, Paul Gosar already has been linked directly and personally to Nick Fuentes. Uh, but his relationship with this neo-Nazi leader has been one of alternately embracing him and distancing himself from him. As you alluded to, uh, Paul Gosar has appeared at two editions of Nick Fuentes's America First Political Action Conference, uh, once in person, once by video. Uh, but after that second one caused a backlash, Gosar said, you know, Nick has a problem with his mouth and sort of attempted to disavow him somewhat. So he's operated with a bit of plausible deniability as he He's repeatedly been tied to extremist activity, including, you know, having um, anti-Semitic websites appearing in his official newsletter. And I think this story, one of the key things about it is it really removes that veil of plausible deniability for Paul Gosar. And what I found is that, you know, this staffer in his office, Wade Searle, evidence appears to link him to this sort of digital persona, chicken right, this network of interlinked social media accounts uh, that has put out extremist content, in, including statements, you know, referring to Jews as, quote unquote, hooked nose bankers, uh, disparaging Asians, minimizing slavery. Uh, and also, in addition to just being a social media account, this quote-unquote chicken persona was a leading figure in Nick Fuentes' organization. And we know that because of accusations from defectors from Fuentes' inner circle who, you know, released uh, internal chats showing this chicken person uh, participating in the leadership conversations, telling them about what was going on in Gosar's office. Uh, and then also, he's a moderator on Nick Fuentes' regular stream. So, you know, this guy has been linked to being a prominent follower of Nick Fuentes, who is an outright neo-Nazi. And, you know, the evidence is extensive. Uh, these accounts posted pictures that appear to show Wade Searle with Fuentes. Uh, it was identified as coming from Searle's hometown, being the same age as Searle. And at its inception, this chicken right account was credited to, quote unquote, Wade and another person, quote unquote, Landon, who, you know, we believe appears to be Landon Peterson, an intern in Gosar's office. So there are multiple people in the congressman's office linked to this incredibly extremist online activity and Nick Fuentes's griper movement. And explain more, Hunter Walker, how you know chicken and chicken right, C-H-I-K-K-E-N, how you directly linked him, because this is a very serious allegation, uh, to Paul Gosar's office, to his staffer, Wade Searle. Well, first off, there's no question he works in Paul Gosar's office. You know, we looked at the disclosures. Right, and but how Wade Searle extremely... is chicken or chicken right? Totally. But one thing that's extremely interesting about that that I just want to touch on first is, you know, there was that extreme video uh, about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, and it was based on an anime attack on Titan with sort of uh, Gosar and Ocasio-Cortez's heads superimposed on the characters of this extremely violent Japanese animation. And anime is a persistent feature of the far right. So that video is kind of an example of how Paul Gosar's social media has already borrowed from these, you know, far right extremist circles. Uh, and he actually hired Wade Searle one day a 
officially after being censured for that video. Uh, so even despite getting slaps on the wrist from his fellow Republicans in Congress, Gosar has repeatedly, you know, on his official accounts, sort of winked and nodded at the far right, even as he, you know, supposedly disavowed him. What we found with Wade Searle, you know, is just so many links. I mean, first off, Gosar joined Gab, the extremist social media site, right after Searle joined his office. At that point, he started reposting content from Chicken Right. Uh, Chicken Right was reposting content from Gosar. At points on the Chicken Right accounts, and they're all linked. I mean, there's a Twitter, a Telegram, and a Gab, sort of a, a overall presence that all has these internal links promoting itself. An Instagram page that was credited to quote-unquote Wade and quote-unquote Landon. In uh, all of these interlinked accounts, um, you know, promoted extremist content, promoted Gosar, talked about insider knowledge of Arizona Republicans. And then, you know, the two most dramatic moments came as Wade Searle took his activism beyond social media. And Searle appeared to join Fuentes at a 2020 Stop the Steal rally. In addition to being a neo-Nazi, Fuentes was a big election denier whose followers had a major presence at January 6th. And you can see a man who appears to be Searle standing behind Fuentes uh, at one of these rallies in Phoenix, Arizona, where he called uh, Trump's loss a quote-unquote fraud. And, you know, photos of that man were posted on the various chicken right social media pages, as well as, you know, Wade Searle's more public named social media. So he posted his own photos, uh, you know, various things in the content, such as his hometown, the credit in the bio, seem to link him to this activity. Um, and then, most importantly, you have these defectors from Fuentes' organization, a man named Simon Dickerman, who has named Wade Searle as Chicken Right. This was sort of an open secret on the far right. Uh, I came across it, and then I joined with two researchers, Haley O'Ryan of Arizona Right Wing Watch and Nick Martin of The Informant, and we pooled all of the information we'd found. And, you know, it, it, it just really appears to definitively show that Wade Searle was behind these accounts. But, you know, he has been previously named by his own colleagues on the far right. And so what has been Gosar's response to your investigation? <laughs> Not much. You know, yesterday, the only thing I noticed from Gosar is that, you know, he shut off uh, comments on his tweets. He, he blocked replies. Uh, and I think that's a really, really important thing here. You know, I noted before that he was censured for this extreme video about uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, since then, he's actually been brought back onto committees after having them stripped from him, including the extremely powerful Oversight Committee. Uh, not only did we reach out to Gosar to give him an opportunity to, you know, comment and reject this in any way, you know, or to say that he didn't know that this was happening. Um, but we reached out to Speaker McCarthy, and he's offered no response whatsoever. And Democrats have offered, uh, you know, very limited response from what we've seen. And one of the reactions I'm noticing is just because of Paul Gosar's extensive history, you know, winking and nodding at the far right, speaking at Fuentes' events, people have said they're not surprised. And, you know, I would just note that... You were talking earlier about the alarming rise in white supremacy in this country and white supremacist organizations. Getting an inroad on a Capitol Hill staff is a major, major, you know, turning point in that movement. It's a major bit of growth for them. And if we start to reach a point where we say we're not surprised by this, where we say, you know, we expect this in Congress— then we're allowing it to become normal. And I personally find this shocking, and I think we should remain shocked by it.
Hunter Walker, we want to thank you for being with us, investigative reporter at Talking Points Memo. We'll link to your exclusive new report. Capitol Hill staffer is a prominent follower of neo-Nazi Nick Fuentes. Oh, by the way, another news from Capitol Hill. A man armed with a metal baseball bat attacked two staffers at Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly's district office in Virginia Monday. The man arrived at the office, reportedly said, where's Connolly? It's unclear what motivated the attack. A young woman who was an intern at the office on her first day of work, he beat her with the baseball bat, as well as a senior staffer. He slammed him in the head. They were hospitalized. They are out from the hospital now. Next up, an update from human rights advocates just back from the U.S.-Mexico border as the Trump-era Title 42 policy ends. Stay with us. Me llaman el desaparecido Cuando llega ya se ha ido Volando vengo, volando voy De prisa, de prisa, rumbo perdido Cuando me buscan nunca estoy Cuando me encuentran yo no soy El que está enfrente porque ya Me fui corriendo más allá Me dicen el desaparecido Fantasma que nunca está Me dicen el desagradecido Pero esa no es la verdad Desaparecido by Manu Chao. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. For the rest of the hour, we're hosting a roundtable discussion on the human rights crisis unfolding on the U.S.-Mexico border and the impact of President Biden ending the Trump-era pandemic policy known as Title 42 last Thursday, after it had been used to expel nearly three million migrants without due process. A lawsuit filed Monday argues Border Patrol has now forced many migrants into makeshift open-air camps that violate custody standards. We're joined now by three guests. All of them are just back from the border. Two of them joined a delegation monitoring the situation. In Santa Ana, California, Gerlene Joseph is with us, co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, an immigrant advocacy organization that provides humanitarian assistance to Haitians and other black immigrants from the Caribbean and Africa. In Mexico City, Erica Guevara Rosas is a human rights lawyer and America's director for Amnesty International, also part of the delegation. And in Tijuana, Mexico, Erika Pinero is an immigration attorney and the executive director of El Otro Lado, by national nonprofit helping immigrants on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. We welcome you all back to Democracy Now! Erica Pinero, let's begin with you. Talk about what's been happening this past week with the end of Title 42. What are you most concerned about? 
Well, unlike all of the predictions, we did not see a surge of migrants. We did have many migrants who had been waiting patiently, some for years, um, to seek asylum at ports of entry, who were left with a lot of fear and confusion about the end of this policy because they had heard that the Biden administration's new policies would actually further restrict their access to asylum. And so when Title 42 ended, many of them tried to present themselves at the port of entry, which is consistent with the law and consistent with what uh, Customs and Border Protection told us would be possible. But instead, they were turned back and made their way into these makeshift camps that, um, you know, thousands of people ended up in by um, yesterday. And so in these makeshift camps, uh, Border Patrol was not letting people leave, uh, but they were also not providing food. They were not providing water. They were not providing medical care. Um, we saw babies as young as three months um, elderly people as, as old as 80, people with medical emergencies, um, just a lot of people suffering without food for up to seven days. And so over the past 24 hours, Border Patrol has finally um, started to clear these camps out. But, you know, it's important to understand the larger context of what's happening right now. After Title 42 ended, there were actually half as many people entering the United States. But Border Patrol made a choice to hold them in these open air encampments without access to food, water, or medical care, to try to sh to try to create the impression that there actually was a surge when that's not what we were seeing at all. Um, so my biggest concern is that that will continue to happen on the border. Um, that will be like a political show rather than um, them using the capacity that they have to process asylum seekers in accordance with the law. During a news conference last week, journalist April Ryan questioned Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas about Border Patrol agents on horseback chasing, grabbing and whipping Haitian asylum seekers. She was referring to that 2021 series of photos and video footage from Del Rio, Texas, that sparked a national outcry. The southern border is not just Mexicans, it is Haitians, it's Africans, as, we, as we've seen, particularly with that issue with the Haitians um, being whipped with the reins or the horses. But what is there— Well, let me just uh, correct you right there, because actually, actually the investigation concluded that the whipping did not occur. I'm sorry, I, I saw it differently. They were whipped with something from the horse. Gerlene Joseph, I wanted to bring you into this conversation. Your organization, the Haitian Bridge Alliance, is representing Mirage Joseph. He's a Haitian who was whipped by a U.S. Border Patrol agent while attempting to bring food to his family. Can you talk about what happened to him? Also, about an image of a U.S. Border Patrol commemorative coin that seems to be glorifying the violence against asylum seekers that we're showing on air now for our TV viewers. Thank you so much, Amy. The reality is what Secretary Mayorkas just mentioned is absolutely um, heartbreaking to hear because he knows that the investigation that was conducted by the, by the administration only looked into 30 minutes of the entire uh, uh, week-long uh, ordeal of abuse that we all saw in September 2021. And, and as you could see, them celebrating using that coin that depict the image of uh, Mua Joseph in the most 
inhumane and abusive and humiliating way. And we can clearly see that the, the officer, the man in horseback, holding him, holding his person with his hand, and we could clearly see the whip on his back. So to say that is, is, is really uh, um, unbelievable, uh, but we all know that we have heard they only looked into 30 minutes of the whole ordeal where people were abused in the most inhumane way and really brought us back to a time of slavery as we are looking into anti-black racism and extremism into the United States. That is a pure reflection of that, and it did happen. And we continue to push to hold accountability to the administration. We have filed a lawsuit on behalf of Muir Joseph and 11 others who were under the bridge. And we also want people to understand that over 21,000 people have been deported to Haiti, including Muir Joseph, including his family, his little girl who turned two years old under the bridge where he was bringing food to them because in the United States we were not providing the bare necessities for them. That is the reality that we continue to live, and that is the reality that we continue to see at the U.S.-Mexico border, where people are patiently waiting and trying to use CBP-1 to get an appointment, which has been proven to be extremely difficult, especially for people with darker skin colors. And April Ryan had a bigger point going right through to today in 2023, is how in particular um, black asylum seekers, black refugees are being treated or being protected. And she made the point that the black Americans who went into Mexico uh, and were killed uh, by gangs, um, that they were mistaken, it's believed, according to the gangs themselves, for Haitian refugees. Uh, can you talk about this issue, bringing it right through to today and what we've seen even in the past week and what you think needs to be done, Gerling? Amy, once again, this is heartbreaking. When that happened early in March, I spent the entire weekend reaching out to both sides in Mexico and the U.S. to try to identify those people we saw. Because at first I was frightened because we could not identify them. We clearly saw if it wasn't for the video and the pictures that went viral, those people would have been lost without a trace. Whether they are U.S. citizens with a U.S. passport or they were Haitian refugees, the moment black people arrive, they do not matter. At, at, the reality is, whether you are from Haiti or the United States, the U.S.-Mexico is unsafe for them because we clearly said you can be killed, disappear, kidnapped at any time. But if the only reason why we were able to really discuss that is because they found out that they had American passports. And I will tell you that I personally spent the entire weekend pushing both in Mexico and in the U.S. to identify those people and try to locate them. And it wasn't until that Monday we finally had heard that they were U.S. citizens and they were mistaken for being Haitian migrant, Haitian asylum seekers, because they are prey, they are vulnerable. And when they are taken, there's no recourse, there's nobody to speak on their behalf. And we continue to see the entire system is fully rooted in anti-black racism on both sides of the border. You've gone to funerals of Haitians who have died in Mexico? 
We have had funerals almost every month of people who have died in Mexico. We unfortunately just lost a, a little baby girl who was born uh, um, uh, in Reynosa, and we tried to, to get an emergency evacuation to get her to a hospital in McAllen. Unfortunately, it was too late. So we literally buried those we can find, and those who just disappear without a trace. We cannot even tell you how many people have just disappeared without a trace. Whether they are Haitians, indigenous women, black and brown, they disappear without a trace every single day at the U.S.-Mexico border. And we specifically continue to bury people every single month. I wanted to bring Erica Guevara Rosas into this conversation. We're speaking to you in Mexico City, uh, the America's director for Amnesty International. Can you talk about how Mexico is cooperating with uh, the United States? President Biden just had, I think it was an hour-long conversation with AMLO, um, uh, the president of Mexico, and what you think needs to be done, the effect of this um, cooperation between the two countries on on the issue of migrants. Title eight are the latest example of how the U.S. is outsourcing law enforcement and migration and refugee policy, not only to Mexico, but to other countries. Under Title eight now, the Biden administration is also trying to outsource uh, refugee policy to countries such as uh, Guatemala, Colombia. They've been agreeing with other countries, including Canada, to try to prevent people from crossing the border. And Mexico, unfortunately, has become complicit of the human rights violations that pay people are facing, particularly those who are seeking asylum. Uh, the United Nations has just calculated that around 660,000 migrants are stuck at the border. Uh, many of these people coming from countries such as Haiti, such as Venezuela, countries in Central America, Cuba, that we know very well are people that are escaping massive human rights violations that are seeking asylum. The Mexico situation, as uh, 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 we saw a few days ago uh, with this uh, Haitian-British Alliance delegation, we visited camps in Matamoros, in Reynosa, and we were able to witness the inhumane conditions that people are experiencing in those camps. It's thanks to local organizations, to individuals that are providing assistance to those people in need of protection, that they are able to receive uh, some food, some medical attention. But in reality, both governments are not fulfilling their international obligations to provide assistance and protection to those people that are seeking asylum or are trying to seek asylum. And under the new rules, the situation is going to be even more complex because people are going to continue to be stuck in these very dangerous areas in Mexico, these border areas that we know are totally controlled by organized crime and are putting at people not only, uh, you know, at the dangers of trying to cross the border, but also they have been exposed to serious human rights abuses, such as kidnapping, killing, and many other things. We have heard from families in those camps uh, horrible experience while they are trying to transit the country, uh, when they cross the, board, the south border of Mexico and they are trying to transit the, the country in order to get to the, to the north side of the country. And unfortunately, all these situations, all these abuses, all violations of human rights are in total impunity because Mexican authorities are not investigating, uh, are not um, 
creating uh, paths for people to transit in safety ways. And on the contrary, Mexico just announced that they are going to prevent people from traveling to the southern border, to the north of the country. They are not going to provide with any transit visa, so they are forcing people to find other ways, other paths that unfortunately are continuing to expose them to the violence committed by the organized crime. You have said uh, that organized crime is one of the biggest beneficiaries of these policies. But can you also talk about the federal prosecutors in April in Mexico filing charges against the nation's top immigration official uh, over that fire in the border city of uh, Ciudad Juarez, right across from El Paso, which killed some 40 migrants? Amy, uh, 40 migrants were killed under custody of the Mexican state. They were detained, arbitrarily detained, only because of their migration status. We saw the images of authorities, uh, the indolence of authorities, while people were, you know, uh, in a place on fire. They didn't do anything to protect them. They didn't do anything to rescue them. And unfortunately, 40 died, and many others continue to be injured. Some of them continue to be at the hospital. The uh, investigation that is being carried out has been already lead to the detention of some uh, authorities, low-ranking authorities that were present at the detention center. The National Institute of Migration director has been also uh, brought into the investigation, but he continues to be in his position. He continues to manage the immigration policy of Mexico. Uh, he continues, unfortunately, to um, uh, create conditions for migrants to be at risk. The militarization continues under the, Insti the National Institute of Migration. And uh, we don't see, unfortunately, that this investigation is going to lead into real justice for those who were killed in this horrible, horrible situation in Ciudad Juarez. And when we talk about the other side of the border, our side, the U.S. side, um, Erika Pinheiro, uh, your group, El Otro Lado, and other groups have filed a civil complaint about grave violations of rights in the U.S. committed by U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents, namely Border Patrol agents, who for months have used an open-air corridor between the primary and secondary walls west of San Isidro Port of Entry in California as a holding area for migrants uh, without complying with uh, custody standards. Can you explain what's happening there and what we should understand about the border right now? Yeah, so we've had this camp of several hundred people right across the border from San Diego for the past week now. It was finally cleared uh, yesterday after a lot of noise made by civil rights organizations um, like my own and others who are working along the border. Um, like I mentioned earlier, Border Patrol is holding people in this area without providing even the minimum uh, food, water, and medical care, even for people who are medically vulnerable. And we've also seen several other camps further east in remote desert areas with over a thousand people who are being held in similar situations. Um, so right now the camps have been cleared because of the advocacy of, of many organizations along the border. Um, but we've already seen new, new arrivals into this area. And it's really important to understand that Customs and Border Protection is the largest federal law enforcement agency in the United States. It's larger than all other federal law enforcement agencies combined. Um, they supposedly were 
preparing for a surge at the end of Title 42, and they're not processing people at ports of entry. So the decision to leave people in inhumane conditions, again, is a choice. It's a political stunt made to make, trying to make it look like the border is not orderly, that there's a crisis and that there's a surge, when in fact the only crisis is the way that Border Patrol dehumanizes migrants who are only trying to seek protection in the United States. Well, we're going to continue this conversation in Spanish after the broadcast, and we'll post it on our Spanish website. You can go to democracynow.org and click through. Erika Piñero, immigration attorney, executive director of Al Otro Lado. Gerlin Joseph, uh, with the Haitian Bridge Alliance, heads that organization. And Erika Guevara Rosas, America's director for Amnesty International, speaking to us from Mexico City. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rose, Nermin Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Charina Nadora, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nogueira, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.